0: You're listening to a sermon preached by Pastor Robert Green on Sunday, September 20th, 2020 at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at redemptionhill.com. When I was your age, if you're a parent, have you ever said that to your kids? If If you've not yet become a parent... You will realize it's something you swear you will never say to your kids, but I promise you, you will. I swore I would never tell my kids that, but I find myself saying it more often than I ever thought, and I usually say it around one thing. It's usually when we're together on a Friday night, and we're sitting in a living room, and we're going to watch something together as a family, and they turn on the TV and they go to Netflix or Hulu or or Disney Plus and they pull up a TV show and there's like seven seasons of 18 episodes per season. And they're scrolling around going, let's watch season six, episode four. And I'm like, you know, when I was your age, we, we, we didn't have TV shows. See, the TV shows just sitting there. There was major network channels. Shows came on once a week at a certain time, And if your parents let you, you could organize your evening to gather to watch the show, and if you were late, you're late. You missed it, you missed it. Maybe you had a friend that had a VCR, and his parents let him put in an empty tape and record it, but there was no major cable syndication. It wasn't going to come on in the off-season, so you could watch it later. You either saw it, or you didn't see it. And good TV producers, you know what they would do? they build up that season so at the very last episode, you had to be there because it was going to end on a cliffhanger. And you had to wait six months to see how that thing was going to get resolved when the next season came out. I look at my kids I'm like, how old is your age? We didn't get to binge watch three seasons of a show in two days to catch up on what was going to happen next. And as I was praying this week, I, I couldn't help but have that New season anticipation as we began to come back to 1 Samuel, because it's been a minute since we've been in 1 Samuel. I don't know if you remember the last time we were in 1 Samuel, but the world was a different place. If I had told you when we were in 1 Samuel last time that we're going to take a break because there's going to be a global pandemic, riots in the streets, and murder hornets, you'd have thought I was crazy. But that's exactly what it's been. So it's been a minute since we've been in 1 Samuel, so I've had this anticipation of like what was going on and what's going to happen, and, and it works out in God's kind providence that we stopped at a spot where if I was making a TV show, I would have ended the season anyway. I'd have left you right on that cliffhanger. So for those of you that haven't been with us, I need to do something that a, a good producer will do on TV, and we need to go back and say, previously in 1 Samuel, all right? So previously in 1 Samuel. The story started with a woman named Hannah. Hannah was barren. She was unable to have a child. She cried out to the Lord. And if you remember the story, the Lord heard her cries. Hannah became pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. She would name him Samuel. She would dedicate Samuel to the Lord's service all of his days. And when the time came that she and her husband and their family would return to offer their yearly sacrifices, Hannah gave her young son Samuel over to Eli, the high priest, where Samuel would serve out his days as a young boy in service to the Lord under the authority and the direction of Eli and his sons who were priests in those days. And as Hannah dropped her young son off and her family prepared to return back home without Samuel, this child that God had given them, the Lord gave her something else. He gave her a song. And in that song, he gave her a vision. It was a prophetic song. It was a song of joy, but it was a prophetic song of of a promise that God had made and a promise that God was going to fulfill, a promise of God to give a king to his people that would operate in an authority that would mirror his authority over his people. Hannah sang this song of one who would lift the needy from the ash heap and seat them with princes, who would guard the feet of his faithful, and this song and this hope and this vision it would shape the hopes of God's people for years to come. But it's right there at the end of this song that if we're watching it on TV, the, the story shifts. We don't follow Samuel at that point. We follow Eli and his sons. You might remember this. Eli, the high priest, his sons operating as priests. We learn that Eli's sons weren't faithful ministers to the Lord. They abused their power. They abused their authority. And they abused God's people. Eli, as their father and the priest, he, he chose to overlook, in a sense, what his boys were doing. Rather than discipline them, rather than judging them, Eli actually partook of their sin. He partook of the spoils of their sin. And we learn in the story that God will go to judge Eli and his sons for their sin. And it's after God judges Eli and his sons and ends their line, their priestly line, that we find in chapter 3 that God calls Samuel. And in chapter 3, verse 20, the writer tells us that Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. And the Lord let none of Samuel's words fall to the ground. And from that point forward, Samuel begins his ministry as the judge, as the prophet, and at times as the priest. He would travel on a cycle around the land of Judah to particular cities. He would deliver the word of the Lord. He would deliver judgments on the sin of God's people. And at times, he would call God's people back to a faithful corporate repentance before the Lord. We can't go through every single story, but you might remember when the ark of God was lost to the Philistines because of the sin of God's people and God brought the ark back. It was Samuel who led God's people in a time of corporate repentance, calling them back to faithfulness in the Lord. This was the ministry of Samuel, and he did it for years. But as Samuel grew old, we learned in the story that, in a way kind of like Eli, Samuel's sons were not faithful in the way their father was faithful. As he aged, we learned his sons were not faithful in their ministry. And the leaders of God's people looked around and They saw Samuel aging and saw a day to come when Samuel wouldn't be there. And they saw Samuel's sons and they thought about what life would be like if they were leading. And they came to Samuel and they said, we have a demand. We want you to give us a king like the nations. I know the Lord has led us. I know the Lord has cared for us. I know the Lord has provided for us. I know the Lord has protected us. I know that he's gone before us, defeated our enemies on our behalf without us lifting a sword. But guess what? We can't see him. And those guys over across the river... They got big, tall, handsome dudes with big swords. I think we need one of those. Give us a king like the nations. And this demand grieved Samuel's heart. It grieved the Lord. But the Lord told Samuel, Listen, Samuel, they're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me. Warn them of what will come if they get what they want. But then. Give them the very thing they desire. And this is what happens. God gives them the very desire of their heart. And we meet him in a man named Saul. Chapters 9 and 10 are how we get Saul. Saul is anointed as king. And in many ways, if you go back to the story, he's the logical choice in the moment. The way that people see things. We learn that Saul was head and shoulders above all the men in Israel. Best looking. I'm sure he commanded a presence I'm sure when he showed up, everybody looked at him and expected him to step into the situation. And in some sense, he started out in an an adequate manner, but he quickly derailed. And God's people would discover how mistaken they were. Saul would go on to disobey the Lord himself. Saul would be a king unto himself. Saul would become one who would be a king like the nations. He would accrue for himself power and possessions and do as he pleases. Saul would be the opposite of the very king that Hannah prophesied about in her song. But Saul would be an exact replica of the very thing God said would happen if the people got what they wanted. Samuel was grieved over this as well. And in chapter 15, Samuel had to do the unthinkable. Samuel, this man who has served the Lord since the days of his birth, who's been faithful in his ministry to the Lord, who has served Saul as a faithful right hand. He's been a word of reason, a word of wisdom, and a word of the Lord to Saul. He's been with him every single step. In chapter 15, Samuel has to confront Saul and tell him it's over. The Lord's rejected you as king. You might remember God had told Saul, when you go against the Amalekites, you are to put all of them to destruction. But Saul, thinking he had a, a plan of his own to follow, held back on doing all that God had said. Even kept for himself the king of the Amalekites as a trophy, as a possession. Samuel delivers the judgment of God toward Saul. And in chapter 15, verse 26, he says, You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. And if you were with us in that story, you might remember Samuel said, Give me that sword. And he took that sword, and he handled the business of God's judgment on that king that Saul failed to do. And the writer says, it's at that point that Saul and Samuel parted ways, and they will not see each other again. They will die. They will not see each other. And that's where the season ended. And you had to wait six months for the first episode of the new season to start. And that's where we are. If I was writing the story, that's exactly what I would have done. I would have said, you just got to wait. It was a cliffhanger. What about the song? What about the vision? What, What about the king? I mean, the song said, the adversaries of the Lord will be broken into pieces. Against them, God will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He'll give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. But the chapter ends with the king being judged. And the people on the precipice of being broken into pieces with the kingdom being removed from the king. What of the song? What of the king? You had to wait for the season opener to come around. And as it did, I imagine if it was a show, if you'd like to read it like a human and try to see it in your mind, I imagine that when the first episode shows up and chapter 16 begins... The camera would start with a very slow kind of pan of a Judean wilderness. You'd hear the wind, you'd hear the, the rustling, you'd hear bits and pieces of the noise and the animals, and as it slowed down, it would settle in on an old man weeping. Wet, swollen eyes. And the first thing you'd hear would be this, how long will you grieve over Saul? Since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. As we set up the reality of what's going to happen in this chapter, and every good story moves to a, a big moment, I don't want us to go so quickly to the big moment that we miss the humanity and what God gives us. One of the greatest things about the Bible, the humanity that's presented, the real life reality that gets presented. Here is Samuel grieving. In these first few verses are some of the most human moments you're going to come across. This man Samuel who has served the Lord since his birth, in the days of his youth being given to Eli, being the one that God allowed to anoint Saul as king, being the one who was side by side with Saul, speaking the word of the Lord to him, Samuel loved Saul. There was a real affection for Saul. Samuel loved the Lord and he loved God's people. he had to look at this man in whom he loved and say, it's over. God's rejected you as king. And he has to go back home, and we find him grieving. That's real. Grief is a real thing. It's a powerful emotion. I won't pretend to break into a deep English or Scottish accent, but The old English word for grief, it's called heart sarnes, it literally means soreness or pain of heart. It's where we get the idea of a heartache, and it's real. In fact, there was a study in 2012, it was published in a major medical journal, and that study found that a person's risk of having a heart attack increased 21 times over in the day immediately following the death or the loss of a loved one. And it increased six times over the following week. Grief is a very powerful emotion. It's a powerful reality that affects us physically and emotionally and psychologically and spiritually. Samuel was grieving. There was a real loss. There was the hope of what God had promised to come through his king. There was the hope of the prosperity of his people. There was the hope of the safety and security of God's people. And there was the real loss of this promised man of God, this leader of God, failing in such a spectacular way. And there was the real pain and grief of what would come to God's people because of this man's sin, because of Saul's lack of faithfulness to the Lord the one who had done such tremendous things on behalf of his people. Samuel was grieving deep in his heart the reality that Saul wasn't the king that Hannah sang about. And there's something here that I think is instructive for us and I don't want us to miss it by trying to go too fast. If you peel back all of the layers, I think, Samuel was grieving over the spiritual train wreck of a once-promising leader, and the prospect of what his sin meant for God's people. He was grieving over the impact of sin and how it would impact God's people. And I couldn't help but think this week, as God's people today, what do we find ourselves grieving over sometimes? I mean, with all of the criticism flying back and forth online across the aisles in the church, words being said, accusations being made, thoughts being harbored, people being canceled, all the thoughts we have, all the things we think we come to with such validity, what is it we're really grieving over? What is it we're distressed by? And for us today, is there anything instructive for us in what Samuel grieved? Do you and I grieve over the foothold that sin has established in the lives of God's people? Or do we prefer to see it and gossip about it? Do we prefer to see it and put people on blast for it and then cancel them as a consequence of it? Do we grieve over the stories and the lives of Pastors and leaders in the church who have given in to the sin, the temptation of sin? Do we actually grieve over the indifference of God's people to his word? And over the seeming indifference in God's people to live a life that's been informed by God's wisdom and God's norms? What do we grieve over? Richard Phillips, he. He said that when Jesus said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, he was speaking about people who grieved from a heavenly perspective. Samuel was such a person, he said. And to him, the Lord came with good news of what he was providing for his people. Samuel was truly grieving. But the Lord came to him with something greater than his grief. Listen to what the Lord says. Fill your horn, Samuel, with oil and go. Go. I'm going to send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I've provided for myself a king among his sons. Listen, Samuel, my plan isn't over. My purposes, they're not done. The story's not done. I'm committed to my promises. I'm committed to my plan. Now get up, because you still have a part to play. God doesn't rebuke him in the midst of his grief. God reminds him that in his promises and in his character, there's something greater than Samuel's grief. And he's not done. But there's another word that's tucked into God's consolation for Samuel that helps unlock a bit of what we're going to see in the story. We miss it a bit in English, but in our translation where God says, I've provided for myself a king. The Hebrew actually says, I have seen among Jesse's sons for myself a king. Or if you read it all the way down in the literal, it would say, I have seen me a king. Whose king was Saul? That was the people's king. That's what you want. I'll let you have it. Who did Hannah sing about? She sang about God's king. God tells Samuel, you need to get up. I've seen my king. And not just I've seen my king, it means I've seen to it. I've seen to my king being here. I've seen to my promise, so I need you to get up and I need you to go. And in verse 2, Samuel says, well, how can I go? If Saul hears it, he's going to kill me. And don't miss the humanity. Again, don't go so fast, you miss it. Grieving over this very real loss, the the Lord comes to him and, and speaks such a word of comfort and consolation. Look, my promises are greater than your grief. I'm not done. Get up and let's go. And immediately he's afraid. Look, fear is just as real as grief. If there are two things that get in the way to us being obedient to the Lord's will, it's often grieving over something and the fear that comes with moving forward after it. God says, get up and go to Bethlehem. I've got my plans moving. But do you know what has to happen for Samuel to do that? He has to leave his home in Ramah, and he has to travel through Gibeah. Gibeah is where Saul lives. How many of you would like to appoint a new president right now while one's still sitting on the chair? How well do you think that would go? Do you think he'd go quietly? Samuel's like, wait, how can I go anoint a king when Saul's still sitting over there? He doesn't like me much right now, and I've got to pass through his hometown. Fear is a very real thing that can keep us from stepping into the very thing God is calling us to. It's fear that can keep us from going next door from loving our neighbor across the street. Just as much as it can keep us from getting on a plane and going to a place to reach a people that have never heard the name of Jesus. and Sometimes we need to hear the promises of God that are greater than our fear. I have many people in this place that I am calling to myself. He's had to tell the church that. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Now go. Why? I'm going to be with you always, even to the end of the age. My promises are bigger than your fears. Now, God gives Samuel something, a provision for this fear. God says in verse 2, the end of verse 2, take a heifer with you and say, 'I've, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint For me, him whom I declare to you. And so Samuel did what the Lord commanded, and he came to Bethlehem. Obedience. One foot in front of the other. Because the promises of God are greater than my grief and my fear. And he goes. Now something happens when he gets there. The elders come out. They come out to meet him. They can see him coming towards the gates of the city. And so they come out because they know who he is. Now, Bethlehem is not on his normal route. That's not a normal place where Samuel would have stopped for his ministry to be enacted. But they know who Samuel is. Do you know what else they know? They know about what happened with him and Saul. They know there's been a parting of the ways. So when the elders see Samuel coming down the road with a cow to their town, they're obviously nervous. If we receive him, is Saul going to think we're on his side? I don't want to be on Saul's bad side. Wait a minute, the, the judge is coming to town with a cow? Who's done something we don't know about? Whose sin is he about to call out? Hey, Samuel, they say, are you coming peaceably? Why are you coming here, man? Samuel says, it's okay, peaceably. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord, brothers. Consecrate yourself and come with me to the sacrifice. Tells the elders, go prepare yourself. Go wash yourself. Go change your clothes. Go pray. Get yourself ready. There was a process they had to get ready for, and he was going to do his part. He's going to take that cow. He's going to slaughter it. He's going to butcher it. He's going to start the fire. And he's going to start cooking the pieces that are devoted to the Lord. And he's going to start cooking the pieces that they're going to share together. It all takes time. He says, get Jesse and get his boys. We need to consecrate them as well. This doesn't happen bang, bang. It takes time. Time is passing and they're getting ready. And now the scene is set. All that in the episode to get you to the big reveal. Every good story does it, right? Every good episode does it. they got to set the stage for you to to keep watching, to keep seeing what's going to happen, right? That's what's been happening. Now we're ready. Now we're ready for the big reveal in this entire episode. Verse 6, when they came. Barbecue's going, you can smell it. Everybody's cleaned up, prayed up, they get together. When they came, Samuel looks on Eliab, and he thought, right? We're in his head right here. He's not saying it out loud yet. That's one positive thing here. It's in his mind, though. He saw Eliab, and he thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Now, don't read ahead. Why do you think he would think that? Wait, What do you think? Jesse brings his first, his oldest son, and Samuel's in his mind going, ah, oh, go ahead and popping the top off the horn of oil, getting ready to pour it. I'm going to find out in just a second, in just a verse, it's because this particular son had a commanding appearance. Probably the tallest, strongest, the oldest, best looking. Samuel's heart began to beat faster. This is what we need. Surely, this is what the Lord wants, right? It's always been that way. Don't get mad at him yet, right? How many of you ever heard of a guy named William Wallace? Well, we'll make it a little more modern. William Wallace. You haven't heard of William Wallace? Have you ever seen Braveheart? Worst job of casting in Hollywood. You know why? Why? historians will tell us that William Wallace was at least 6'7", if not 6'8". Mel Gibson's like 5'2". Do you know why they say he's that big? Because we have his sword. It's in the William Wallace Museum. Do you know how big his sword is? Five feet, seven inches. Now how big does a man have to be to successfully wield A five-foot, seven-inch forged steel sword. It's got to be pretty big. And when his man is that big and that strong and able to wield a sword that well, do you know what groups do? They put him in charge because they're captivated by the size and they're captivated by the sword. And when he can wield it really well and they put him in charge and they go to battle against other tribes, do you know what happens when he wins? They put him in charge of the whole region. It's always been this way. So here's Samuel standing before Jesse's sons, representing the Lord, and his heart's beating faster. Because here's this big, strong, handsome guy standing right out in front of him. But that logic hasn't worked out too well in the story. This was the very thing that happened with Saul. But here's Samuel getting all caught up in it all over again. And it's here in verse 7 that we learn the big reality of the story. And it's simply this. The Lord doesn't see the way that you and I see. He doesn't see the way that you and I see. And he's trying to take us to a place where you and I can see more like he sees. All right, listen to verse 7. The Lord says to Samuel, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. So there it is. He can tell, God's in his heart. And God knows. Ah, oh, you're all caught again. He's tall and he's good looking. Saul was a head and shoulders of everybody else and better looking. And we know how that went. Don't look on that because I rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. When are you going to learn, Samuel? And when you hear God talking to Samuel right here, go ahead and put your own name in it. When are you going to learn, Robert? When are you going to stop falling for the sleight of hand? When are you going to stop falling for the misdirection? Sure, he's impressive. Sure, he's probably commanding. Sure, he'd probably look good on the throne. But you're focused again on the things that are inconsequential, and you're going to pay the price. Think about it this way. How many of you in here like magic? Not like Harry Potter magic. Don't get afraid of everybody's hands going down. Not Harry Potter magic. I'm talking about like, like street magic. Guys who are really good with cards, right? We love that stuff. It's great. Every good street magician has to master a few basic principles. But do you know what one of the biggest principles is they have to master or they'll never be successful? It's the art of misdirection. If they don't get good at misdirection, they don't make money. Misdirection is just the ability to get you to look at my hand over here. Well, I change things with this hand over here. If they don't get good at that, they can't do their craft. Pickpocket, same way. Bump into you in a certain way so that you're focused on what happened, not paying attention to the hand that's going around and getting that wallet. If they can't get good at it, they can't pick your pockets. You feel uncomfortable with those illustrations? Good offensive coordinators in football. They've got to be masters of misdirection. They've got to get a defense focused on what's happening over here, not paying attention to what's happening over here. Guys are getting too smart. They're always having to change it around. It's a chess game. If they don't get good at misdirection, they won't be successful. Friends, ever since the garden, you and I have been falling for a form of spiritual misdirection And our spiritual pockets get picked every single time. When she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was delightful to the eyes and that it was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate it and gave some to her husband and he ate. Ever since the garden, we've gotten caught up on that which is not significant, the most inconsequential, and we've missed reality beauty, and intelligence, and charm, and money, and polish, and power, in the end, they are ultimately inconsequential. Why? Because they're not the substance of reality. They're not really who you are. God is saying, this is not really who you are. But we've always found ourselves getting wrapped around the axle on all of these other things. And when our hearts get focused on those things, we're getting caught in the spiritual sleight of hand. I mean, if you're honest, just consider how much of your heart's attention is actually caught up in them. I mean, be really honest. How, how do we tend in our life and our world to select our leaders? I mean, you know that there's massive amounts of money that go into studies to tell us which color tie, which kind of shirt, what kind of suit. What kind of stage politicians need to be on for us to like them? Massive amounts of money go into this research. I'm from Nashville. I like country music. I don't mind. Do you know that one of the greatest country artists in the history of country music, his worst-selling album happens because he didn't wear a hat? People have become so accustomed to this particular thing that when he didn't do it, people couldn't buy into it. A hat. How easy and how often does your heart get caught up in these things? how do you select your spouse? I'll get real personal now. Those of you that are not yet married, what are you looking for? Someone with a particular stature, a particular level of polish, a particular level of attractiveness and security, just hoping they have enough character to pass a test? Friends, we we live in a world that is drowning in a sea of Photoshop reality. Listen, I don't care who you are in here this morning, young or old, male or female, there's not a one of you listening that at some point during a day is not making comparisons with yourself and those things on a daily basis. You are lying to yourself and you're lying to all of us if you say you're not. Men and women at unprecedented rates are searching for some version of self-worth on this kind of scale. And Do you know what's happening? Do you know what the sleight of hand is doing? Do you know what the misdirection is doing? It is corroding our soul. It is utterly corrosive. This cultural tsunami that is crashing down on us, it habituates our hearts to focus on the inconsequential. It habituates our hearts to focus on the color and the quality of hair and skin and all those kinds of things. You don't believe me? Just be honest with yourself for a second. When you're walking down the street, how often are your eyes always looking and noticing, lingering on something, comparing with something, dreaming about something? That's utterly inconsequential. And what's happening is you and I are seeing in a way that is the exact opposite of the way that God sees. You know what's happened? We're responding and living to what we see. But God doesn't see the way that you and I see. I mean, if Samuel came through those doors right there, I imagine he would probably aggressively sit me down and he wouldn't need a microphone. And If he was here, what do you think he would say? I mean, given what he has gone through and given being exposed the way he's been exposed even right here in in chapter 16, what do you think he would say? Why are you so obsessed with those things? Why are you so caught up with those things? Why are you allowing those things to define your reality, your sense of self, and your sense of purpose? Don't get caught in those things. It's a sleight of hand. It's a misdirection. God doesn't see like that. That stuff isn't reality. It's not really who you are. Don't get caught. Why are those things your measure of what it is to be important? Friends, the church is just as susceptible to this, and I don't mean church as in you individuals. I mean church collective and corporate. We're just as susceptible. We can get so caught up and wrapped up in appearance and form, and it can be just as corrosive. There was a British pastor named William Blakey in centuries past, and he said, let everything in the church be outwardly correct. The church be beautiful. The music excellent. The sermon able. I love that. That's the bar, able. I love that word. We're going to put that on the website whenever we fix the website. What can you expect on Sunday? Able sermons. That's a new word. Nobody's using that word. Relevance played to death able sermons. I like that one. Let the sermon be able, the congregation numerous and respectable. What a pattern such a church is often regarded. He's saying, what what a pattern people look to and want to replicate, right? What a pattern that church is. Alas, how little satisfactory it actually may be to God. What does God look for in a gathering of His people? The lowly sense of personal unworthiness. The wondering contemplation of the divine love. The eager longing for mercy to pardon and grace to help. Faith that grasps his promises. Hope that is anchored within the veil. The kindness that breathes benediction all around. A love that beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. It's these things breathing forth From the hearts of a congregation that gives pleasure to God. Samuel, church, when are you going to learn all these other things? In the end, they don't matter. God doesn't see the way that you see. Those things are not reality. God sees substance. God sees character. God sees the heart. Do you realize if God in his kindness and grace right here in 1 Samuel 16 didn't step in to correct Samuel, Israel was about to have Saul 2.0, biggest, strongest, handsomest, pouring the oil before anybody else walks in and we're just going to repeat the cycle. But God in his kindness steps in Verses 8 through 10, you can see Samuel's trigger finger was eager. If it wasn't Elieab, it was going to be somebody else. Give me another son. But the Lord rejects them all. And so in verse 11, Samuel says to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. It's funny, if you go and look this up in your, on your computer and use one of your free Bible software programs, you'll find that when it says that he's the youngest, the word there that he uses is a word that means youthful or young, but it carries a, a weight to it. It means young and inconsequential. Oh, yeah, I've got one more. He, he wasn't worth bringing to the party. He's out keeping the sheep because that's his responsibility, but he wasn't worth bringing here. And Samuel said to Jesse, go get him, for we won't sit down till he comes here. Now remember, the fire's cooking, the cow's cooking, the barbecue's cooking, everybody's cleaned, everybody's prayed, everybody's present. And Samuel says, we're not going to eat and we're not going to get on with business until you get that boy. And so they have to wait. They have to wait for this inconsequential son, just the way Israel has been waiting for the promise of a king. And I thought about ending it right there, because that would be a good cliffhanger. You just got to wait. But I won't. Verse 12, they sent and they brought him in. Now, mind you, David hasn't had the same chance to consecrate himself everybody else has. He's had to run in a hurry from the fields to the party. So he's dirty, he smells, he hasn't prayed, he hasn't been clean. he hasn't prepared like everybody else, and he shows up. The writer says he was ruddy. He had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is he man, here we are again, even as it was with Hannah, and happens over and over again in the story of redemption. We see God's just unscripted yet refreshing way of trampling all of our human standards and expectations, how God will choose the most unlikely of people to do His will, and just how often He's going to stand our logic on its head. One writer said, God has never been and will never be a slave to our personal conventions. Paul would look at the church in Corinth and say, Consider your own calling. So it's all of you, right here. Consider yourself. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise, what is weak in the world to shame the strong what's low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. I've seen for myself my king. It's not because David's heart was perfect. We're going to find that out if you keep reading the story. It's because this is the one in whom God had set his heart upon to be a king for him, according to his heart. This is one of the biggest, I don't even know the right grammatical word, one of the biggest misunderstandings in contemporary church, we like to find verses and phrases to throw up on things, and I'm looking for a man according to God's own heart, right? Do you realize that that particular phrase, a man after God's own heart, it means a man of God's choosing, a man that God has set his heart upon? It's not talking about the place the man has in God's heart. Excuse me, it's talking about the, the place the man has in God's heart, not the place God has in his heart. We tend to hear a man according to God's own heart and think about it's a measure of how much of a place in this man's heart God has. That's actually not what it means. It means this man is one whom God has set his heart upon, his intentions upon. And this is what differentiates David from Saul and all of his brothers. It's not because he was perfect, but it's because God had set his heart on him. And so Samuel, he took the horn of oil, he anointed David in the midst of his brothers, and the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and and went to Ramah. End of show. That's when the credits start to roll. A new king has been anointed. Privately and quietly and passively. You realize we have no note of Samuel ever telling the elders, Jesse, David, or any of the brothers of why he's there. Some Jewish scholars think that Samuel whispered into David's ear, I'm anointing you as king, but we don't know that. He doesn't actually tell him what's happening. He just does it, and then he goes home. But the Spirit of God floods in. And at this point in the story, everything's about to change. And this is where I would roll the credits. And I'd make you come back to hear what happens. And to some degree, I'm going to, but I'm going to end it this way The overlooked shepherd boy is going to become the great king. It's utterly unexpected. If you remember when we first met Saul, what was he doing? He was looking for his dad's donkeys that he had lost. He was a failed shepherd. When we first meet David, what's he doing? He's tending to his father's sheep. And in the next couple of chapters, if you stick with us, you'll see David put his own life at risk to protect and save his father's sheep. As the story goes on, you're going to see he's going to be a king and his job's not going to change. God's just going to change the flock that he has to care for. It'll be the story of a ruddy boy from a ruddy town one of the least of the towns in the tribe of Judah. Until that day, the prophet of God and the spirit of God showed up. Just as is going to happen in a matter of generations when people will say, can anything good come from Nazareth? Certainly not the Messiah. Not the son of a carpenter. Not one with no beauty or majesty to attract us to him nothing in his appearance that we should desire him because, right, that's what the misdirection wants us to see. Just as Samuel got so easily caught up in Eliab, so God's people, ever since the garden, have suffered the same spiritual misdirection. And as the credits begin to roll on this first time we meet David, the question the reader and the viewer has to deal with on a very real level is, Who are you going to decide will be king over your life? Much like Samuel having to go and listen to the Lord and anoint the king, who's going to rule over your life? Who or what are you going to give your ultimate allegiance? Will it be yourself? Will it be a particular ideology? Something is going to rule your heart. Something is going to capture the full allegiance of your heart. Will you get caught by the spiritual sleight of hand and focus on the inconsequential, the shiny object, something that's pleasing to the eye, the same temptation we've fallen for since the garden and find ourselves consistently walking by sight rather than by faith? Who's going to be king over your heart? Listen, it's it's okay to want respect from other people, but you can't be ruled by it. It's okay to want comfort, but you can't be ruled by it. It's okay to be attracted to beauty, but you can't be ruled by it. It's okay to want to be successful and prosperous, but you can't be ruled by it. It's okay to want to live in a grateful and, and thankful community, but you can't be ruled by the need for appreciation. It's okay to want to live in an orderly and efficient environment, but you you can't be ruled by the control that it takes to have such things. You see, friends, for you and I to begin to see the way that God sees, we're going to need to receive the king that God's provided. And so if this was a show, I imagine, as the credits are rolling here, I promise I'm going to end if you're watching the Marvel movies, you know what happens in the credits, don't you? If you stick around long enough, they've got a little mini-scene of what's coming. Kind of lets you know what's going to happen. If you stick through it long enough, though, and I've made you stick long enough, I imagine if the credits were rolling, it might flash forward to three guys walking down a dusty trail outside of Jerusalem. Two guys have no idea who they're talking to, but they're utterly despondent. And if you know the story, you might know it's Jesus showing up to walk side by side with two disciples on the way to Emmaus. Why are you so despondent? Why are you so troubled? I, I, we thought he was the one. We thought this man was the king. He was the one God had promised, and, and he's not. Why are you grieving It says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. They knew the Bible, but they had yet to see that it was all pointing to him. So he showed them how from the line of this ruddy shepherd boy in Bethlehem, how from David all the way through the story would come another king, the king that Hannah, had actually sung about, the prophecy and the vision that God had actually given her, and that this shepherd king would come not to just protect his flock, but that he would actually give his life over for his flock, that this king was the one who would take upon himself all of his people's sins, past, present, and future, and in him, God would offer a new way of redemption and forgiveness and a new heart. For those that would receive this king when they saw who this king was as he revealed himself to them, for all who would receive this king, they would get new eyes to see the way that God sees. And for all who would receive him, God would look upon them and see his son, his king, his chosen, his beloved. You and I have to choose who's going to be king over our hearts. Who's it going to be? Let me pray for us real quick. Father, we thank you that even in these stories, you reveal to us your long work of kindness and grace to bring us to a place where our hearts can be rescued being so focused on that which just deceives, that just leads to a path of emptiness, that just leads to a path of destruction, and you give us eyes to see reality, to see as you see, to see that which is the form of substance and truth. God, we ask this morning that you would give us eyes to see your glory in the face of your Son. Rescue us From being caught in the sleight of hand and the inconsequential. God, bring us to a place of surrender, a place of delight in your rule, a place of delight in your wisdom, a place of satisfaction in your grace. We ask this morning that you would do that in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon preached at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information about the church and to hear other sermons like this, visit us online at redemptionhill.com.